Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at The Flow Line with Matt Offenbacher and myself, Justin Gautier. Matt, how are you doing this morning? Oh, I can't complain. Good, good, good. How about them Astros last night? It was awesome. It's just these West Coast games sort of kill me because they're so I, late. <laughs> I'm old enough now that I fall asleep even when I'm trying to stay awake. <laughs> yeah. But that was a pretty awesome game. And it was sort of funny to see Granky bring the heat, throwing as fast as 93 miles an hour. Fast. But it worked. Yeah. Yeah. It did. It did. Who who do they have coming down the pipeline? Are they back coming back east? Well, they're headed back home next week. That's right. That's right. They'll play the A's and the Rangers. And of course, at the time of the release of this episode, who knows where they'll be. <laughs> right. In this moment in time, I'm very happy with a win last night. Excellent. Excellent. Matt, you know, I almost feel like everyone out there should encourage Matt to start a, a Houston Astros podcast. There's probably a bunch out there, but he could talk for a while and probably gain some serious traction. So I'm going to bug you about doing that one day, Matt. Maybe someday. I worry that some of my cynicism and other times, you know, anger bouts would front <laughs> poorly on my character. So I don't know. I think people would appreciate, you know, the full transparency of how you really feel and probably <laughs> would relate to a lot of people. So it'd be kind of like jump into the Matt Astros wagon and let's all ride this train together and discuss how unhappy or happy we are. Yeah. I probably get a lot of therapists listening in. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, look, I mean, as much as I would like to keep talking baseball, let's let's talk a little bit of drilling fluids. You know, we're going to kind of get a little bit more granular with a topic today and discuss more specifics on a certain product that we use probably every day, especially in oil-based mud. And it's certainly something you can use in water-based mud. And that's known as gilsonite. And well, actually, AKA, which I just learned something new, uintate which if anyone out there is drilled in the Utah Basin, it probably kind of rings a bell. I would imagine it's something that's maybe mined in the Utah Basin of Utah. Is that right, Matt? Exactly. So, I mean, it's sort of an interesting deal because I've always known it as Gilsonite and yeah. you know, American Gilsonite. It's actually their registered trademark. So ah. what's sort of interesting, like, I don't know what happened in the technical literature, but I think at some point they said, hey, you know, that's sort of like, that's your branding and you need to be more generic. And all of a sudden it went to uintate, which is really awkward to say. And I don't know if I ever pronounce it correctly. <laughs> it seems pretty straightforward. So anyways, we're, we're talking about the same thing. And we, we believe the fine folks at American Gilsonite, who are, you know, we know a number of folks over there would be okay with us using either one interchangeably. So hopefully, you know, it's a good product and something that we use a lot. So I thought it'd be a good idea to talk about it. Perfect. Perfect. Well, for those of other listeners who may not be familiar with it, let's describe what it, you know, what is it used for? What's the application? And ultimately, what does Gilsonite do for us in the drilling fluid space? So it does a good job helping to bring fluid loss down. I mean, that's, that's probably where a lot of people, you know, think about it is it's very efficient at that, at just making a nice tight filter cake to mitigate stuck pipe and do all the things where we want low fluid loss. But it's also a great well war stabilization agent kind of sealing micro fractures and that sort of thing to improve borehole quality. So those two properties are really where you intake has really, you know, 
made a name for itself and certainly where it's kind of become a standard, even though you can't get it. It's, it's predominantly just straight out of this mine in Utah. It's not something you dig up out of the ground just anywhere. Right, right. Are you aware of any other reserves of gilsonite in the U.S. or even like in overseas, North America? Overseas, yes, but there's not many. And I think there would be some arguments about the quality and all that kind of stuff because this stuff is pure. You know, there's nothing else in it, which is is kind of unique as well. It is. Yeah. Cause a lot of the stuff that we mine, there's some process to get rid of the contaminants. So that's, yeah. that's, that's an interesting kind of fact about it. Okay. Well, so how does this stuff work? I mean, you know, it's, you mine it, I'm assuming it's comes in a powder and they grind it and size it. And all of a sudden it gets put in a bag and shipped to location, but how does it work when it gets put in the mud? Yeah. Well, first let's put on our oil-based mud hats. Cause that's, that's the predominant application. And the reason we would say that is because this material is actually inherently oil wet. Which is, what does that mean? So that means that it's oil loving or it would readily disperse in, in oil-based mud, for example. You know, we talk about wetting agents and how LCM, for example, is water wet. And so we have to add wetting agent to actually get it to disperse. Otherwise, it would clump up and fall out. But that very nature is important by the notion that it being inherently oil wet, it's also kind of a, a pliable material. So it's kind of flexible. And basically when you have a little bit of overbalance or you start to have fluid invasion into a micro fracture, for example, this stuff will kind of cram itself in there a little bit, but because it's oil wet and it's touching a water wet material, it sort of gets stuck fairly. It doesn't invade very far before it just gets stuck. It limits any invasion of fluid and provides a nice seal without going in too far and perhaps allowing that micro fracture to propagate and you have, you know, shale falling apart in your hole. And so that's, you know, one of the things, but if you think about a filter cake where you have solid materials and gaps between it, you're trying to seal those, it can stick in between those two and and tighten up your fluid loss. You know, other things, if you think about emulsions, it provides some surface area so it can tighten up your emulsion. You start putting all these things together and what you end up with is kind of a natural cost-effective material to tighten up fluid loss and, and do all these things, you know, especially when you compare it to some of the synthetic alternatives, which, you know, we don't use very often, at least onshore, but sometimes you'll see them used in synthetic muds and that sort of thing. I gotcha. So I've often heard it kind of categorized under the generic sort of asphalt teen or asphalt type material. Is that true? And, and could you kind of shine some light on, on maybe why it would kind of differentiate itself from other asphalt type materials? So technically it is. But I think, you know, the argument, the folks that are, you know, would encourage the use of this product would say, look, that's true that technically it is, but now you're kind of putting it into a camp with a lot of these other materials that, for example, you know, asphalts tend to have a pretty, pretty low softening point. So they might soften at 130 or 150 degrees. And what that means is that they basically start becoming pliable to a point where they flow, which you don't want. And so... In fact, with uintate, I have a hard time saying that. I'm very sorry. <laughs> it's just, uh, but anyways, with I'm just going to call it gilsonite. You know, with gilsonite, you actually get different softening points. So you you can actually get high at higher temperatures. You can get something that softens that that's more robust to that. But it inherently, you're already talking. You got to be a few hundred degrees Fahrenheit for it to soften. So it's already naturally not going to do that. And so you know, not to say those asphalt materials don't work. It just it may require considerably more of them to provide a good seal. 
that's typically what we see is, is yeah, you know, they can do the same job, but if, if you're tracking kind of your overall total cost, you know, it might take you one sack of a product like this versus five of the other one, you know? So, you know, Gilsonite can be quite efficient from that perspective. Okay. Interesting. So we mentioned it being an oil-based mud, but is this something that you can use in a water-based mud? I don't think I've had experience using it, but is there an application there? You can, you don't see it used a lot. And I think, you know, there's one, you got to water wet this stuff, right? So now, you know, a lot of times liquid gilsonite, when you see liquid gilsonite, you're predominantly talking about something that's going in water-based mud because it's going to be dispersed in some kind of a glycol. It's going to be water wetted with a surfactant so that it mixes easily. Because one of the problems is you throw this stuff in there and it'll clump together and separate out of the shakers or, you know, create some of these other problems where you're not really getting it dispersed in the system so that it can help with lower quality. And the other part of it is with a, a water-based application, you may actually kind of want it to soften a little bit. And so you sort of circle back where asphalts might be cheaper and make more sense. Gotcha. So, you know, a sulfonated asphalt, you might sulfonate gilsonite to help it disperse, but you're talking about more cost and a lot more work. So yes, you can do it. Do you see it a lot? Probably not just because of the cost and the challenges and all that sort of thing. But the liquid version is just dispersed. So it's not solubilized. It's not, there's nothing really different about the particle size or anything like that. It's just water compatible now. Gotcha. Gotcha. So with regards to mixing, I mean, is there, cause I've heard their products come that are known as liquid gilsonite. Yeah. Can you touch on that? Cause most of it, all the gilsonite I've ever added is, in a, you know, just a regular 50 pound sack, but Liquid gilsonite, I think there's something that unique about that, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's just going to be dispersed in a carrier, and it's it's probably got a it's probably water wetted already, and that would be that's the driver for it. Ah, I see. So other than that, it's it's basically ease of mixing and making sure that it's dispersed because it would be such a problem to try and do that in a pit with it dry and adding a surfactant, like doing all that manually. Mm. Not very be very fun on a rig, I I would expect. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's I mean, like I said, I haven't seen it and nor do any of the accounts that I look after use it. But you know, certainly again, another tool in the toolbox. You never know. So what about any other sort of characteristics or you know, things we should know around Gilsonite? Like if say for completions purposes or data acquisition stuff. I mean, is there anything that we need to be aware with, you know, the application of Gilsonite where we might need to be careful or consider using it or maybe in cases we shouldn't use it? Yeah. So, I mean, I see this argument and, you know, I see the argument for formation damage. And I would say, look, if you're drilling a well and you're going to case and perforate it, it's no problem. On a nice thin filter cake, you want to minimize invasion, perfect application, perforate past that filter cake. It's going to minimize damage. However, I've seen some claims with respect to open hole completions that, it's a good idea or, or that it, you know, reduces formation damage. And I think the whole concept of something that's pliable and invades pores and, and that kind of thing, when I can't acidize it and get rid of it, along with, I think the other part that isn't reported in a lot of that literature is the actual, what's called the flow initiation pressure. So it, it stops the invasion of fluid. And then I need that cake to peel off basically and how much pressure it takes to actually initiate that. I think it could dramatically increase, and I've, I mean, I've seen it, it could dramatically increase that value 
which would limit your production because you may not be able to actually lift off the cake and get your, you know, get your production going. So I would say proceed with caution. I mean, my policy, if I'm in an RDF is no black powders in the reservoir. You don't need them engineer it where you can avoid them. But I see that claim on formation damage. I've seen some return perm testing, making those claims. And yes, I think it's, it's stopped some of the liquid invasion that could be damaging but I don't think holistically it's good for reservoir, you know, well production and open hole completion. So I think that's an important thing to consider. I think, you know, on the data acquisition side, I think it can be really good if you're, you know, for logging where you have, you know, you don't want to get stuck and you want type fluid loss. Yeah. But it, it, let's say you want a core, especially if you're doing, you know, running whole core, it's going to tighten down your fluid loss a lot, which is really important for getting good core. But, you know, this stuff is hydrocarbon based, if you will. There's a chance it would fluoresce or keep in mind that, you know, well, you may be say, hey, I'm using gilsonite. Sometimes this is blended with other things for cost. You know, it could have some other material in it. And so when we've talked about coring fluids, I've said, yeah, you know, get ready to open up your wallet and use something synthetic so that it doesn't, you know, render any fluorescence or anything, you know, offer some hydrocarbon shows where there, there might not be any. And so I think that's worth considering. And the only other thing is it it seems like a little bit of a mixed bag as far as environmental. There are some places where just because it's a potential hydrocarbon show that it might be restricted. However, right. there appears to be some other data that would argue to the contrary with respect to environmental considerations and impact. So depending on where you are in the world, you need to be careful where you use it and just just make sure you're all clear. And like all environmental regulations, you know, it doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that it doesn't meet a restriction that hopefully guarantees that it's good, but we know those restrictions can be a little wonky. So I wouldn't run away from it just because you heard you can't use it in one place. (laughs) Understand how it impacts your environment and then make that decision. I gotcha. Are you aware of any cost-effective alternatives or is, is that, is Gilsonite kind of a standalone product without any substitutes that you would really want to consider? I mean, there's alternatives, but it's sort of in a very interesting spot. You know, we mentioned that there's, there's not a lot of places you can get it. So, you know, it's, it's a limited source product and it's not cheap. I mean, from a cost efficiency perspective, I think it, it makes a lot of sense for a number of our applications. As you said, it's a tool in the toolbox. So like it meets that sweet spot, but your other option, if you want to use like a synthetic material, you're probably going to pay more those materials cost more, they're a little more, you know, difficult to, to source sometimes. And so that can be great for a number of reasons on the performance side, especially if we get at really, really high temperatures, but I would probably wait for a need for that before I used it ahead of a product like Gilsonite. So, you know, and it comes back around to also, how much do I need? Do I need, you know, it's just a couple of pounds per barrel do me good, or do I need to go higher? So there's definitely alternatives. People use asphalt, as I mentioned, you tend to use more of it. It can cost more. So it's a good product. I think most people should know what it is. They should know, they should know that it's an option and know how it works. And so I felt like, you know, however brief the conversation was that that we should run through it and, and have a good understanding. Yeah. The more, you know, the better you are. So, you know, it just, again, there's a lot of things that we take for granted and we just mix on a, on, you know, in the mud and, 
but it's good to kind of get a deeper dive into, you know, even just knowing where it's from is, is a good topic of conversation and understanding, you know, how it works and, and why and what it's doing, you know, against the wall of the formation and how it kind of reacts within the system. You know, I think we should keep doing these. And we'll talk about more products down coming down the pipeline. So, Matt, I don't have any other questions. Do you have any closing last words on the for you know in the Gilsonite world? No, I mean it's you know the stuff's been around forever. It's been used in cementing for you know what, probably sixty years. It's okay. then it made its way into mud. So it's just one of those. I feel like it, these are even good for me to just sort of refresh what I know about things I use every day. So ho- hopefully everybody found it beneficial. Yeah, exactly. Well, with that said, everyone, as always, if you have any questions or thoughts, questions, concerns, you want to talk about baseball, Matt's the one, and you can hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at aesflues.com or feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, connect with us, and you know we continue to release. I say we, mainly Matt and his team, continue to pump out great content on LinkedIn, a lot of educational pieces. We've got YouTube videos, tech tips, which are great visualizations for different testing, different product applications. Matt, is there anything else the listeners should be looking out for? We have a lot of stuff in the pipeline. We got some cool videos. We got some new equipment. So keep an eye on LinkedIn. There's some fun stuff coming our way. Awesome. Well, I'm excited and hopefully the listeners are too. Everyone, thanks for the support. Be safe. Take care for now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.